Welcome to Navigating Marine Risks, a podcast series produced in partnership with AIG. Featuring panel discussions with leading marine industry experts, our series host is Dr. Stavros Karamparidis, head of the Maritime Transport Research Group at the University of Plymouth, UK. Joining Stavros to discuss the human element in shipping, crew welfare, and quality of crew are Jillian Carson-Jackson, Honorary President of the Nautical Institute and with over three decades' experience in the maritime education and training industries. Guy Platten, Secretary General of the International Chamber of Shipping, ICS, who has extensive experience in the marine industry, both at sea and ashore. And Claire Georgeson, CEO of SciFi, a company specializing in shipping crew well-being. Welcome to Navigating Marine Risks. I'm your host, Dr. Stavros Karamberidis. No sooner had it started to recover from the impact of the global pandemic and adjust to a shift in global supply chains. The maritime sector has had to face an array of other challenges, the conflict in Ukraine, an energy crisis, inflation, and general economic uncertainty. And all this is happening as the sector faces perhaps its biggest challenge of all, making the transition to a sustainable future. How the maritime industry responds to this environment and pressures is the subject of this podcast. We are starting by looking at the most critical element, the human factor. Welcome to all, and thank you for joining us today. To start, Guy, can you please give us an update of the current state of the shipping sector and how several external factors, for example, the pandemic, decarbonization, and others, affect the operations? I think uh, shipping has been through a tumultuous few years, uh, and thank you very much, Stavros, for the opportunity to to, uh, to be here today. It's uh, weathered many storms, uh, not least the COVID-19 pandemic that had a dramatic effect on the morale and welfare of our seafarers, and that's something we're still recovering from now. I think we've got the war in Ukraine, which again is impacting on seafarers. At one point, well over 2,000 seafarers were trapped in Ukrainian ports, unable to get off their ships and go home. Um, we have the decarbonisation and the worry that goes along with that as we try and transition to new fuels. And I think just the head and, and we, we, uh, something which is not often talked about, but is very much there, is security. So we have off the west coast of Africa, piracy. We have crews being kidnapped, being held in unimaginably poor conditions. These all things do impact on, on seafarers. In terms of the shipping market as well, we've had uh, post-COVID recovery and booming times for container lines, uh, particularly last year, where they made record profits. Um, it does appear now that those uh, those things are coming back to pre-pandemic levels, so the, the rates have dropped. We've had the bulk sector have had a, a good year. We've had other sectors as well. It's a, it, as always, it fluctuates and goes up and down, as everything does in shipping. But it's uh, it, it really, we must never forget the, the effect of all of these things on, on seafarers. We also have skills as well, STCW. So just a variety of factors as well, which is, um, it, it is happening in the current state at, at the moment. Zillian, is there an impact due to the aforementioned factors to crew retention? Most certainly. And it's a really, a really interesting point to look at. I think the pandemic has actually, in essence, brought the industry closer together by normalizing these connections through technology, just like what we're doing right now. Now, the technology was in existence already. I remember back long before um, pandemic days that I was using Zoom to talk with colleagues back in Canada. But it just seems that the travel restrictions, the lockdowns, it has 
forced us to look into other ways to connect, which is actually really a good thing and is giving us some good opportunities to take lessons learned. This is increasing our digital intelligence and it provides us with more of an opportunity for just-in-time training operations, which uh, options, which actually then support the seafarers and that welfare. What I've seen is interesting is actually sometimes uh, some of my colleagues during COVID came ashore, but they've actually now gone back to sea. So we're actually starting to see a bit more fluidity and it's great news for building resilience, I think on both sides. So we have good lessons learned from the pandemic. It was a very difficult time, but it's brought us as an industry, I think, closer together and able to recognize the benefits of what digitalization can do for us. Guy, according to the uh, International Chamber of Shipping, since uh, 2015, there is an additional demand for cargo transportation, which led to an increase of 11.8% in officer demand. If officer supply doesn't increase, shipping sector will face a shortfall of 26,000 officers by 2026. Those figures are huge. Is the sector aware of them? And what are the actions uh, to tackle the gap? Yeah, thank you. I think actually the situation is worse than that. It's going to be more than 26,000 officers short. We've had a real retention problem since COVID as well. Why on earth would anyone want to go to sea not to know when they're going to come home again? And that's something that owners and managers take, you know, really seriously. So it's it's not just that plus the attractiveness of the seagoing career. Um, you know, there's people don't want to necessarily go away from home for eight, nine, ten months at a time. So all these things are having a, a factor into it. I mean, how we're tackling the gap? Well, firstly, I mean, actually on Monday, the we launch a diversity and inclusion toolkit for shipping companies and, and operators. And that's really important because actually we're just missing out on about 50% of the world's population uh, because only 2% of seafarers are women. And we need to uh, tackle that and actually try and make this a, an attractive career. Uh, you know, I, I can say from personal experience that it's a, it's a very rewarding career, both in terms of your professional development, but also financially as well. And I think that holds true now. So we need to do a lot more, I think, to, to really show the benefits of the seagoing career and the benefits of what, what goes with it. But it is, it's not helped as well when you've got the situation in Ukraine and Russia, about 14% of the seafarer population comes from those two countries. So all these things are exacerbating the supply side of, of seafarers. And, you know, uh, it, it's, it's a really difficult time in a lot of sectors and a lot of trades. And uh, Gillian, is it something that you also see and you monitor? This is really interesting. And I know the results of the ICS and BIMCO reports. And, and Guy, you've done so much to put this together. It's been really great to have that opportunity to see these numbers. What is interesting, though, is within the Nautical Institute, we're actually seeing an increase. And um, with the cadets uh, that are coming on board now, the Nautical Institute has the free membership for cadets, which has really sort of opened our eyes a bit more to where the young people are coming from. I think what is interesting is that this, this ebb and flow of uh, people going to sea, going ashore, going back to sea, we're starting to see that more and more. I, I had the honor just before Christmas to do a series of lectures in India, uh, the Indian Maritime University at one of the campuses, just Kochi campus. And during five days, I engaged with 500 cadets and that wasn't all of them. So, so there's a lot of energy and that was only one campus. So we are seeing that there are pockets of this energy coming and each one of those cadets was thrilled to have the opportunity to learn more about what's happening and to think about where their future is going to take them. So I do think what could be an issue and what did highlight to me was a bit about the curriculum 
I think I touched on it a little bit earlier on. So we've got the training program that's there, but what is happening is this digitalization, is the digital technology, is the expectation that you don't go to sea for your entire career, um, that you actually could go to sea, you could have another career. The industry is a very broad industry. So I, I think the change that we're seeing now is resulting in a requirement to review and revise what's being taught, but also to recognize that there are, there are pockets of energy, the pockets of, of potential that we have. And I'm very, very grateful as well that um, ICS is about to launch this uh, diversity toolkit. So I think, I think the concept of the industry shortfall, I, I think that there's a lot of a shortfall in, in many industries. So our industry is one, but we do have a lot of opportunity. And the attractiveness of the role of going to see or the role of being a maritime professional, I think is still there. And we just need to sell the good story and, and recognize that, uh, yes, sometimes it could be away from home for a long time, but there are improvements that are happening. The technology is there and it's a very exciting industry to be in. It's, it's sort of on the, the cusp of the cutting edge all the time. Great to bring into the discussion that, you know, there is pockets of uh, people that are willing to come and uh, be involved with shipping, which is great. Claire, attraction of new seafarers, of course, is dropping, especially in, in the UK, and also more and more seafarers withdraw from sea, as Gillian has mentioned, uh, earlier than in the past. So, for example, the British seafarers have a self-life, if, if I can put it in quotation, of seven years after which uh, they leave the service. Why is that the case? Thank you, Stavros. It's a really interesting question. Um, I think there are a lot of microeconomics that really play into this sort of question. Really, what we're seeing is there are a lot more work-life opportunities when you look at certain regions like Southeast Asia, for example, where the telemarketing, jobs within IT, call center roles are really increasing in these areas. So we then consider why would young people then move into traditional seafaring roles when their families perhaps have been in that and when they've actually got opportunities to do something elsewhere, which then keep them in the family network at home. Touching really on what Gillian and, and Guy have also just said about uh, crew and officer retention. If it is true, and it is that seafarers have a shelf life, we use British seafarers as an example of this, if they're then leaving uh, the service or they're leaving seafaring and they're coming to shore, there is also a bit of a knowledge gap that is coming with them. We have to get better at extrapolating knowledge from seafarers when they leave either the service or when they come to shore. And we need to do this more effectively because what we have is if people are staying at sea for a relatively short period of time, seven to 10 years, when we're then recruiting new cadets, we need to make sure that those skills are being passed on to them. Um, and it's, it is a gap that is really challenging to answer. And I think it's something the industry needs to think more of and just be a bit more cognizant of. So, Guy, it seems that, you know, there is a gap of transfer knowledge. And, and as we know, you know, that costs money for, for companies to train people and to educate them. And of course, in a cash-driven sector as shipping, why is that the case? Why are we having such a big gap and how we can go forward? I think it's, you know, it, it depends what shipping companies want. Some companies want to train their cadets up. So take one oil company, for example, they deliberately they take they recruit cadets now and they're expecting them to come ashore for seven or eight years because actually what they're doing is they're recruiting for those technical roles ashore, knowing that they have to do it. So I think it does depend which company and what their overall human uh, resource strategy is with regards to seafarers. 
I think typically anyone who's thinking they're going to get a 20 year return is, is probably it's unlikely to happen. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm pretty typical. I came ashore after 10 years or 11 years. Um, and I think that's that's pretty typical. And, and most people I know seem to do that. And of course, those ones who do want to stay at sea, that's absolutely great for them. But I think, you know, anyone who's trying to bank on someone going to sea for that length of time, I think nowadays it's it's not going to happen. But I think if you have it as a part of an overall strategy, as you know, what we want to see is seafarers stay loyal to a company and then come ashore to fill those really key technical roles going forward. Gillian, what do the seafarers really want so they could stay in shipping? Uh, yeah, and I'm really glad you said shipping in that because it the industry is so much more than being a seafarer. So being a seafarer is really critical. As Claire noted earlier, this concept of, of shelf life, actually in a way that I, I'm glad you put in quotation marks, it's really a bit misleading because the maritime profession, like all professions, has so many different dimensions that you have. So going to sea, working on a ship is really a key aspect. Um, and seafarers, as we know, are critical to society as a whole. Every single episode of the Maritime Matters uh, series that I did during COVID highlighted the core role of the seafarer, you know, that no seafarers, no shipping, no shopping. However, there are also critical roles ashore. And the seafaring, the knowledge that you have, and talking a bit about that knowledge gap that Claire was saying, that knowledge is really, really important to harness and to and to have within those shore roles. So those shore roles need to be appealing as well. I think the opportunities are really endless and we do see the, the change in the industry. I think it's actually hard to find an industry that has so much to offer in your career. I mean, I joined the industry in 1983 as an officer cadet and here I am um, approaching 40 years later. It's, it is an industry that is, it gets under your skin. It has lots of opportunity and I think it goes back to that concept, being a seafarer is a core step, but we shouldn't be concerned about this idea that they might come ashore after seven years. And many actually we're finding more are actually going back to sea again. So we're doing mentoring. The thought was to mentor um, in the Nautical Institute to mentor uh, officers to come into shore roles, but now we're seeing them reverse mentoring going back to sea again. So I think it gives us an opportunity to have that the knowledge base, capture the knowledge base and ensure that we have ongoing expertise in all areas of shipping, including those areas that are coming up. Claire, you want to say something on that? Yeah, please. Thanks, Davros. Uh, I just want to touch really on just what Julian has just said here, because it's actually really important. It isn't always about extrinsic rewards. Um, and I think a lot of people get quite caught up in this notion that the seafarers are we have these perceptions you think you you speak to someone on the street you say what's your perception of a seafarer and they often think the drunken sailor you know sort of labor employee there is a very archaic notion of what a seafarer is that really has to be challenged it really does have to be changed and we see in other industries trucking logistics these guys they're also going through a bit of a perception change they have to go through a bit of a reputational a bit of a, an advertising change i think the same has to happen for seafaring because what we see is that seafarers are not all about extrinsic rewards this isn't a you know you pay someone a lot of money and you get a motivated happy risk adverse um, content seafarer or worker it's actually deeper than that and it is that link really between ship and shore 
how do you then bring seafarers from their time spent at sea to shore for them to do very technical, amazing jobs? And that's where the intrinsic reward part comes to it. This is where the organization has to have a responsibility, not only to its shore staff and to its customers, but very much to its seafarers. The seafarers are their next wave of employees. These are their next wave of experts. These guys are the next CEOs, CFOs, CCOs. These are the next echelon when it comes to really developing this industry. And I think that's just a really important point to get across. Thank you very much, Claire. Uh, Guy, is there a recipe to tackle seafarers' attrition, or is it a rather fluid subject that changes with external influences and a person's interpersonal situation? I think companies are taking more and more notice and interest in this in terms of the overall welfare, the mental health. I mean, five years ago, we didn't really talk about mental health at sea. We talk about it all the time now. We talk about, uh, you know, just it's just things like the the, the latest amendments, the Maritime Labour Convention, that uh, people can access the internet, and any good employer will provide that now. It's, it seems obvious, but that's what young people want to do. I think there's some downsides to that as well, uh, has to be said, because you you know uh, there's some tragic cases where you can sort of look at what's going on at home, but you can't actually participate, and that has its own. Uh, I think mental problems as well for some people. So it's it's not all good, but it's certainly these things are really important. I think it's showing a clear career path. I think it's investment in training, looking after their families. So it's, you know, for example, uh, how many shipping companies stepped up to the plate during the Ukraine crisis and moved entire families outside Ukraine so that they could carry on to look after the seafarers. So I think there's a real focus on that. And we need to get across that to young people coming in that they will be nurtured and looked after. So I think there's things that the companies are doing, but I also think there's things that governments can do as well if they truly believe seafaring and shipping is a, is a key industry, which of course it is. I think the recipe is actually pretty basic. It's respect, it's opportunity, it's engagement, and it's support. And, and really that's, I think, what, what, what Guy was getting to. We need to have this essence of uh, an industry that is supportive of its employees, the actual recognition, as guys mentioned, from the, the countries, from all levels of the role of the seafarer. And, and I really do personally as well, from this concept of not necessarily seafarer attrition, because they're still remaining in the industry, we need to keep people in the industry, but mentoring and mentoring over the long term, it pays dividends that we just can't quantify. If we help each other through the hard times, we celebrate the good times, and we recognize that we are in an industry, as you said, it's really well done, the fluidity. So we are in an industry as fluid as the water on which we sail. Uh, you know, it, it changes rapidly at times. Sometimes it's as calm sailing, but it's always in motion. And we, as an industry, can work together. And I think we did pull together during COVID. We have had challenges, and we always keep making it work. And, and that's really what in the industry we do. We just make it work. But to have that support from the governments, from the organizations, the companies, and, and really respect opportunity, engagement, and support. There are so many factors that play role. So for example, I was reading uh, earlier on the report from the Lloyd's list that over 1,500 seafarers were abandoned in 2022, which is shocking. And unfortunately, the numbers are growing again. But I'm just thinking, Claire, according to various studies, uh, they have mentioned that seafarers' attrition have been impacted from various factors, which we just mentioned earlier on, digitalization and giving access to internet, abandoned seafarers, isolation, uh, availability of training, 
uh, perception of the sector, as we said earlier on, because still the perception of the sector is being uh, considered as not a good sector to work. Are those factors affecting the crew welfare and what impact on the quality of the crew operating vessels have and how that can be tackled? I think this really does come down, and this is actually a very good example of why retention on board ships is really, really, really important, and also retention within shipping organisations. Retention isn't something that every owner or operator takes seriously, and owners that do make the connection between the organisational responsibility and their seafarers, these are the ones who naturally fall into a cycle um, of offering things like benefits, like free working internet connections and healthcare for families. But I think more organisations need to make the link between the importance of acquiring and retaining quality, well-trained, motivated, happy crew. In practicality, what does this actually look like when it's services and it looks like as a wealth of benefits? But it really it's about aligning the company's vision and mission to their seafarers, to their employees, to every person that falls within that chain. And I think that's really for the organization to take responsibility for. And as Guy has said as well, that has to be encouraged by governments. That also has to be encouraged by other factions of the industry that can really lead the betterment, set the best example. And I think that will then trickle down to seafarers. Owners will start to accept really the commercial importance of having quality crew and the customer as well also will expect this. What they want to see is that when they are buying stuff from big tech companies, that they're using vessels to move goods from A to B, using well-motivated, well-protected, well-cared-for crew. And these are questions that consumers are now beginning to ask as well. Zillian, I'm just thinking, with the outbreak of the war between Russia and Ukraine, we had the extremely unfortunate situation of vessels and seafarers being stranded in Black Sea since February 2022. Can you explain exactly what the crew do in a situation like this? And in addition, how this impact the well-being and physical and mental state of the people living on board? That's, a, that's actually a very difficult question. I, of course, I'm not in that situation, so I really can't explain exactly what it is that they're doing. but. Uh, as maritime professionals, we're all very well trained in risk, risk assessments and, and being prepared for the unexpected because it always happens on a ship. Something unexpected will happen. Uh, this, I think, was something beyond what anyone would have expected to have happened. Uh, of course, it has an impact on their mental state. It has an impact on their family and uh, it has an impact on all aspects of their life. What we've been trying to do is within the Nautical Institute to be in regular contact with our members. Uh, we have online meetings. We're working with them with special concerns for the cadets that are under training so they can keep their studies and continue their training. We've been in contact as well with the uh, UK Maritime Colleges who are committed to bringing and to helping Ukrainian cadets who are faced with issues, especially those who are at sea, who are on, on ship. We ha have been made aware of all of these difficulties faced by the Ukrainian seafarers, specifically some of the issues to do, for example, with the um, DP certificates that they have. So within a Nautical Institute, we've been expanding the time frame for those uh, you know, for six months or on a case-by-case -case basis. And that will have an ongoing impact. So we go back to some of our earlier questions about retention. I think how we treat seafarers in times of difficulty are making the news so that it will be what we will want to say 
what is a good story that we want to share so that we can improve the interest within the maritime industry and start bringing some people back in. So in times of trouble, we all go through difficult, difficult times. This has been a pretty much unprecedented difficult time. And it will have impact on, as, as Guy had mentioned at the beginning, so many seafarers come from Ukraine and from Russia. And we have these uh, crews working together. We are an international organization, international industry. So the physical, uh, the mental state, the well-being, how the companies are paying, they're going the extra mile. Uh, a guy had mentioned uh, the organizations that are actually bringing families, complete families out of the Ukraine, helping to look after the seafarers goes back to our respect, providing that support. And people are looking, people are looking at the industry, they will see what's happening. So it's an opportunity, it's a terrible situation, but it's also an opportunity for us to come together and to work more cohesively as an industry. And and I think in the long run, that will help us learn from this experience, uh, which even though we're used to having unexpected things happen, that was beyond, I think, what anyone would have expected. I am just thinking that shipping sector is always at the spotlight and we're talking about the perception, we're talking about digitalization. Is it ready to invest to tackle any kind of the information factors that we discussed? Or do you think it's fair that most of the weight is coming to the shipping sector? Uh, because as it comes from the discussion that shipping is a critical infrastructure and it should be part of the you know government's way forward or the national organizations to help and support the shipping sector. Is it something that could probably be a good way forward, shipping to come along with international organizations? I mean, sh- shipping companies are investing an awful lot in digitalization. They're investing in technology because you have to, uh, essentially. There's, it's, there certainly is a lot more we can do in terms of just making our sector more efficient is to invest in this technology. I mean, we talk a lot about decarbonization, but actually an awful lot of energy is wasted in just the way the, the the industry is set up at the moment. So ships often sail at high speed to get to a port only to sit there at anchor for three weeks. So there's a lot that can be done in digitalization will actually make the, the sector more efficient. But also that includes the training of the crew. That includes, um, you know, we, we you know the companies do have to invest and to, to look after their crews now. And I think one of the things I think has been a real positive coming out of the COVID crisis is the relationship between workers and employers is probably hasn't been better. I am in regular dialogue with my counterpart into the National Transport Workers Federation. Um, we have many joint meetings. We've just signed uh, a joint uh, memorandum of understanding between the employers, the managers, the owners and the unions to work together towards just transition. So all these things link in together. So hopefully it's starting, we're working together we can ensure that we make the sector attractive to new recruits and they feel they are valued and a valued part of our industry when they do uh, join. Claire, uh, looking at the crew welfare, mental health and isolation, there are some reports that some companies are having prolonged working hours and some of the contracts are flexible and uh, that, of course, are affecting the psychological safety. Uh, and of course, I'm just thinking, is there a link between the psychological safety and the safety operations of the vessels? Do you think that we need to provide skills to support resilience, supportive and safe work environments going beyond the personal protection equipment, as we know, PPE, uh, perhaps to uh, we should start talking about 
psychological safety strategies or something similar to that to improve the resilience and make the sector better? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I really like this concept of PSS as well, psychological safety strategies. It's very core. Cool. Uh, I might trademark it if that's okay. No, I think it is. One thing that Guy just talked on, and I think it's very important, is that COVID has given really the opportunity for everyone to work together. Um, I don't think we should lose that momentum. And just to briefly touch on what you mentioned before, looking at contracts, uh, so shipping companies which apply three months on three months off generally have a higher retention of crew. That's just one example where companies are doing something which actually doesn't work commercially very well for them. It's very expensive uh, to fly crew around the world on very short rotations. But actually what they get in return is they get much higher retention, much more loyal crew and people that stay within their organization for longer work better and work safely. I'm going to use an analogy of driving a car. Uh, you can just shout at me if it gets too long and too boring, but it's just to do with risk. So the way I look at how communities and environments, how they operate on board is you have 20 men and women uh, who work for a very long period of time in a very isolated uh, environment. And that in itself includes an element of risk that is outside of anything that you can quantify. It's outside of really what you're doing with mental health support or training. It's the human element aspect of it. So for an example, I've had a really, really, really tough day at work, uh, not because of anything in particular. I've just had one of those days. I'm not feeling very happy. It's the end of the day. It's five o'clock and I'm desperate to get home because I want to have a bath. I jump in my car uh, and I'm driving and I'm driving uh, the speed limit plus some. There are amber lights in front of me and I'm speeding up to get through them because I want to get home. I'm overtaking and undertaking and I'm driving just a little bit erratically. I get home turn off my engine and I reflect and I actually realized that that one hour that I spent in my car driving somewhat erratically uh, somewhat less carefully than I would normally do has actually increased my risk profile but also increased the risk to the people around me because of the way that I behaved the choices that I made during that journey home my risk increased not because of anything I can tangibly put my hand on but just because of the way that I felt I believe that the shipping industry owners, crew operators, um, even charterers to some extent, have to accept that when you have an environment of people working together, that there are risks which are outside of things that can be controlled. These are uncontrollable risks. These are things that training cannot really help. Um, they can assist with, but they cannot mitigate entirely. So actually what we need to do, I believe, is we need to look at how environments and communities on board ships work together and which risks can be quantified, which risks can be mitigated and which risks just exist as a whole. And so that's, yeah, that's my answer on that one. Thank you very much, Claire. I like the point that Claire has done about men and women. And Zillian, I'm just thinking about diversity, which is an important factor that shipping should tackle. That even though we had an increase of nearly 46% of women seafarers since 2015, there is still a huge gap in the market as they represent only 1.3% of the workforce. Does diversity and inclusion have an impact to crew welfare and how we can tackle diversity and inclusivity in shipping? Is transgender sea something that is happening? Diversity and inclusion in maritime sector in general, is it something that is happening or how we can go forward? That's a really, really good question. And 
it's interesting to see that we've had an increase of, of such a large percentage of women seafarers since 2015, yet we still have so few. That tells you how few there were. Um, actually, when I joined the industry in 1983, I was told that there were less than 2% of seafarers were female. Um, that was in 1983. Uh, and now here we are, um, and we have less than 2% of seafarers are female. So although we might have more numbers, we have more seafarers as whole. Uh, we still basically have the same percentage um, almost 40 years later. So 2%, my goodness, we're, we're really not making the headway that we need to. So we know that there is a business case for diversity. We know, we've heard all the reports, it's throughout all of society. It makes sense. It, at, the bottom, at the bottom line, it brings in more money. As Guy has said that they're, they're putting out, we're doing so much effort to address this whole concept of diversity of all types. So it's there's gender diversity, there's, um, there's gender preference diversity, there are all aspects, there's uh, neurodiversity, there's different types of aspects of diversity that we need to think of. So although the numbers are in, we know it makes sense. Although we know that diverse teams are more innovative and we can focus on the bigger picture when we have more uh, more minds on the topic, you know, we keep thinking, you know, two minds are better than one, three minds are better than two. You have much better uh, approaches that you come out and you can have a much more robust response, especially to some of these risks that we were talking about. And, and, and as Claire noted, if we work with each other and respect each other, then we have the opportunity for uh, a safer environment, a, a psychologically safe environment. But I'll go back to my comment on respect earlier. It's, it is really, really quite simple. We're seeing more diversity in the industry. In order to continue that, we need to respect. So we need to respect everybody. We need to respect boundaries always. Uh, I've said that a few times, so that, that is really critical. First off, as, as human beings, we need to set those boundaries and then we need to respect those. Respect each other's, uh, respect the roles and knowledge at all levels. And I guess that really does lead to professionalism because we are maritime professionals. And it is an organization where professionals bring forward their ideals and they need to feel safe to do so. That brings back to that psychological safety. So the world would be really boring if we we're all the same. Uh, it's challenging because we all think differently, but it's actually wonderful that we all think differently. And I think we have to um, not have fear of what is different, but actually embrace those differences. And, and if we wake up each day, maybe, and we consciously work to engage with others at a respectful and professional level, then we're going to increase resilience. We're going to increase that ability to move forward through these ongoing challenging times. So maritime industry will is continuing to face challenging times. So where are we going to get that power for? That power comes from people, and the people come from working with each other. Talking about working with each other, we know that shipping is heavily regulated. So, Guy, uh, there are a lot of regulations in shipping already, and um, we're talking about various issues that people uh, are taking into consideration before joining shipping. So, for example, like the water quality or the internet connectivity. So, that's are some factors that are, uh, you know, people are thinking before getting on board. Do you think that shipping should be regulated against them, or we should do it somewhere somehow different? Or can we get some best examples from other sectors? I think actually on this one, I think we lead the way along other sectors. Um, we're the only industry in the world which has a, essentially a bit of rights for its workforce through the Maritime Labour Convention. If you ever go to the International Labour Organization, you know they are so pleased and proud that the shipping industry has this because no other, it's no other regulation exists on a global basis. So 
I think we can build on that and we do build on that. We have through the tripartite arrangements between unions, employers and, and governments as well. We, we continually, you know, look at it and, and things have been tweaked, improved. Um, you know, the, the, the last round of negotiations back last April proved that to be the case. So I think we are highly regulated in terms of our certification. There is a minimum standard through the STCW. You know, um, that is a minimum, not the uh, not the required standard. But yeah, we do we do have that one in terms of we, we know there's regulations in terms of potable water on board, in terms of all sorts of different things as well. But I think actually we do a pretty good job at uh, making sure there's minimum standards for our seafarers and welfare standards for our seafarers, which I think a lot of other industries could could take note of uh, going forward. That's not to say we can't get better, because of course we must get better. But but nonetheless, I don't think we should beat ourselves up too much about that sort of thing um, and actually celebrate some of those things, but use it as a springboard for the future because we are going to face a retention problem. We are facing a retention and recruitment problem. And that is best just through things like remuneration, through facilities on board. And, and Claire mentioned about three months on, three months off. You know, all these things actually in event make commercial sense because it's better to retain your workforce and to have them well rested and safe than anything else. So I think the, the day of the lowest common denominator is, is going, honestly. I think the events of the last few years have proven the, the worth of seafarers and we're going to build on that going forward. So I'm, I'm positive about seafarers. We just now need to attract a new generation of seafarers, uh, you know, and, and I think that's what I'm going to be focusing on this year, this just transition, but also that just transition to attract a demographic possibly who wasn't interested in our industry before. And talking about the new generation of seafarers, I'll come back to you, Gillian, and think about mm. and talk about how the crew welfare and quality is becoming important nowadays. And should we speak of changing crew competencies and rather than crew quality, which seems to be, uh, we imply that we have inferior crew, which is not the case because, as we know, we train our crew quite well, and we should go and we continue doing that in the future. Yes, and 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 Gaius has given us an example of all of the the standards that we reach to. So I really want to move away from this concept of quality. I mean, as a, as an educator, really, I don't like the concept of of these uh, terminologies. So I shy away from terms like uh, like good or you know you know the phrase that they have often. The student will have a good understanding of well, first off, what what is good? What's good to me might not be good to you. Understanding of, well, how do you assess understanding? So I think what we need to do is we need to work, and I, I like your comment there about moving towards competencies, because we are looking at having crew who are competent to do a task to a stated standard, and, and those tasks are changing. So when I was uh, a cadet and when I was on the ships uh, working in the Canadian Coast Guard, one of my competencies was to use uh, horizontal sextant angles in order to position the boy position um, perfectly, you know, with, within the right area. Uh, that's a skill that's no longer required. So what we need to do is we need to make sure that we focus on the skill sets that are there. And what we're seeing now with regards to competency, it's more the concept of being able to learn what you need to learn when you need it. So um, digital intelligence, understanding what the technology is going to do for us when things aren't operating as expected, what, what do all those factors and figures and all, all that data, what does that mean? So it comes into this concept of, of maritime informatics as well. So I think crew competency is where we're at and also recognizing that those competencies are changing fairly rapidly. Uh, there are some, some basic uh, core competencies that we'll need, but we're going to have to continue to evolve and we can't actually train 
a seafarer. We can't even actually train a maritime professional ashore as well for every single job they do. It, it, you know, gone are the days where you get training on a piece of equipment. You have to be trained in how to understand what that equipment's going to do for you because by the time you get trained on it, it's going to be changed. You'll have a new piece of equipment. Uh, and so I think that concept of professionalism and working to provide the best possible role that you can. So being the very best person that you can be in your role as a professional, those competencies are going to change and professional development is key. Thank you very much, Zillian. And final question to you, Claire, because just Zillian gave me the opportunity to think about the future. What is the future of autonomous operating vessels and how this will impact the well-being of the seafarers? Oh, that's the million dollar question, really, isn't it? I think the good thing that we have about shipping is we're always forward thinking. We're always looking at the future. If anything, we're probably 20 years kind of ahead thinking sometimes than actually doing. I think that the whole concept of autonomous shipping, there is a lot of misunderstanding around, well, what does that actually mean? That breeds this kind of panic. Um, oh, well, there's no point me going into this industry if uh, you know I'm only going to be doing it for five years before it becomes redundant. And I don't think that's true. And again, I think it comes down to this image issue that we have in maritime. Uh, there is a perception issue that we really do need to deal with. And that is on every level. Anything to do with you know, lowering emissions or making something more efficient should be celebrated. But I do think that the industry has a responsibility to choose its words wisely and equally choose the way that it wants to position itself when it is talking about future projects and things like autonomous shipping. I don't know if that has entirely answered your question, but I do think that just in terms of perception, when we're using these big buzzwords, we do have a bit of a responsibility to remember that this is a human dominated, people focused industry always has been, always will be, it still is today. It's a, an industry that runs very heavily on reputation. It's an industry that runs very heavily on the relationships that we have built with each other, especially when we look at commercial shipping and the operations within that. Um, and I think Guy, he wanted to hopefully back me up. Yeah, completely clear. And I was just going to say, it's not always helpful when we talk about autonomous shipping in terms of retaining people, because people think it's just an industry on the, on the decline in terms of people. So um, we need to be careful what we define as autonomous shipping. Personally, I can see in some niche sectors, autonomous shipping coming about and, and predefined routes and things. But generally, you know, ships have to be maintained and run and they run 24 hours a day already. So the, the marginal benefits are, are, are there and uh, owners will only invest when there's a business case for them to invest in it. And at the moment, it seems one of those situations where we're all driven that we can do it rather than there's a need to do it. So, uh, uh, but that's just probably my, my cynical uh, hat on uh, with regards to that. But uh, the, the, the debate continues. If I could just jump in on that as well, because yes, the debate continues. I do believe uh, words matter. What we say matters, how we say it matters. Uh, so this terminology autonomous is, is really interesting. And we've, we've had autopilots on board vessels for quite some time. So we've had so many elements of the, of the shipping industry actually already are into that autonomous environment. So it's not something new. It's not something to be scared of, but it is the way that it's worded. And when I, I go back to uh, the time when I was teaching at the IMU 
and in coaching and the cadets are coming up and some of them exactly as you said Claire well why would I into this industry when it's not going to be something for me in say five years and by the end of our session they actually realized that perhaps the industry that they imagined when they were a kid or when they were younger actually is going to change but there's still so much within that industry and there's a lot of opportunity as we get into embracing the technology to help support some of that work-life balance and and really encourage the young people to be to stay in the industry because it is exciting and things are happening. But the way we use the words and how we choose our words, Claire, very good point there. We have to be very careful in this industry because it it, it often will provide uh, an incorrect impression. Wow, I'm having a feeling that we can stay here for another two, three hours discussing. That's an important issue as the human element in shipping. But unfortunately, we have to wrap up. It's been good to discuss the challenges and opportunities related to human element in shipping with you, Gillian, Claire, and Guy. Many thanks for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Stavros. Thank to you for listening to Navigating Marine Risks, producing partnership with AIG. I hope we provided some valuable insights to a crucial issue for shipping a sector that's responsible for the transportation of 80% of anything we consume daily. I'll be back with the next in the series soon. But for now, from me, Stavros Karaberidis, goodbye. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast series are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of American International Group Incorporated or its subsidiaries or affiliates, AIG. Any content provided by our speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, ethnic group, club, organization, company, individual, or anyone or anything. AIG makes no representations as to accuracy, completeness, correctness, or validity of any information provided during this podcast series and will not be liable for any errors, omissions, or delays in this information or any losses, injuries, or damages arising from its use. 